I want to discuss the situation of the psalm. I want to discuss the struggle of the psalm. I want to give you the solution to the psalm. And then we'll get into the gospel and how it relates to this psalm. So let's pray and then we'll get into this text. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the opportunity this morning to look into your word and to attend to it. And I pray that we are able to do so with our, our minds um, as they grasp truth and, and try to discern the, the meaning and the intention of it. And, and with hearts that are soft and humble and ready to receive what your word has for us this morning. Um, I pray that you, um, that you, would, you would set aside my, my ideas and my style or lack thereof and help me, um, help me not to be a distraction against the word, but I pray that you would uphold me and um, truly stand with me this morning as the word is proclaimed so that Christ Jesus would be lifted up on high and that his word might be made clear. Um, I pray that you help us to stick to the text of scripture this morning, not to deviate from it, not to add to it. I pray that as it is proclaimed that there would be an interestedness in this word and that you would use the word to minister to us wherever we are in our individual Christian walk, just providing for each person through the word what you have ordained to do so. And I ask all this in Christ's name. So we've read the psalm, we've discussed what the captivity is, and so we'll get into the situation of the psalm. Let's get right into it. Verse 1, it says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So these Israelites have been taken away captive into the land of Babylon, and they are just exasperated and frustrated and emotionally spent with the situation that is going on in their lives. And they say, we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. That as um, that place, as the, the, the mount of the temple within Jerusalem comes to their minds, it, they, they just begin to break emotionally and they weep when they remembered Zion. They're emotionally exasperated. Sitting down, they weep. Zion, as you may know, refers to the hill in Jerusalem upon which the temple was built. So when you hear um, about, like, we're marching to Zion, or, or you hear about Mount Zion, that's what it's referring to. That that, that place in Jerusalem, where, you know, which was central to the worship of the Jews. And they know that having, having gone through this and having um, you know, seen that destroyed, um, knowing Jerusalem has been destroyed, knowing the temple has been destroyed, and then being carried away captive, I mean, that is just distressing and grievous to them. And so they're in Babylon, by, by the waters of Babylon, they sit down and they weep. Paint that picture in your mind. It says in verse 2 that on the willows there we hung up our lyres. The lyre is, is sort of like a harp. It's a, it's a musical instrument. It's a stringed instrument used in temple worship. And they're not able to use it. There's no joy. There's something that flows from their hearts that would incline them to make music on this string instrument. In fact, they said, like, we're done. We're hanging it up. We're, we're retiring it. We're not able to produce joy and music at this time. Here's, here's what makes it all the worse. Here's, here's, the, here's the kicker. Verse 3. 
It says, For there are captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And, and that's their reaction. All, they, they start to break emotionally. All the exasperation and the frustration and the despair comes to the surface because what's going on is that their captors, the Babylonians, are saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Like, bless us, grace us with one of the songs that you would sing in your temple. You Jews are known for your music and your lively worship and your praise and your chanting and your psalms and the sweet psalms of David. Well, can you sing one of those for us? And and they ask them to be joyful. Like, sing us one of your happy songs. Sing us us one of your joyful songs. And and that's their, their breaking point. Here's a response, verse 4. They say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? That's the central question of this song. And it's based on a couple premises. The first premise is that how can we sing the song of Zion? Because the temple has been destroyed. Jerusalem has been destroyed. So those songs that are used in the worship of the temple, that are associated with Zion, how can you expect us to sing those songs? And secondly, we're captives in a foreign land. Like, these songs are the songs of Zion. Zion's no longer there, or it's severely destroyed, and um, we're in a foreign land. So those songs that are associated with Zion, in our homeland, how can you expect us to sing that. That's not going to flow from our hearts. It would be sort of like one of our soldiers being being taken captive in Iraq or Afghanistan and the captors requiring of them a patriotic song and saying, sing us one of those songs like God Bless America or the Star Spangled Banner. It would add insult to injury to ask that. Sing your patriotic song while you're in captivity. Sing your joyful worship song from Zion while we've destroyed Zion and you are in captivity to a foreign land. And they're like, well, that, that's not coming. That's not coming out of our heart. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And the author, he pronounces a couple curses upon himself. He says in verse 5, If I forget Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. So the right hand, you know, your, your dominant hand, the one that they would use probably to play their music, to play that harp, to play that lyre, to play those stringed instruments. He said, if I forget Jerusalem, if I don't um, make it a priority to regard and remember Jerusalem, then may this happen to me. May my right hand forget its skillfulness. May my right hand forget to play music May its ability be gone if I don't regard Zion, if I don't make it a priority to remember my homeland. And then he says, verse 6, Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my chiefest joy. He says, if I don't make Jerusalem my highest priority in life, then that may I not even be able to speak. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. So may, may I not have the ability to sing, may I not have the ability to play instruments if I don't regard Jerusalem. 
If I don't give it the priority that I feel it deserves. And then the last three verses are judgment. He's calling for judgment upon the Edomites, who when they saw Jerusalem being destroyed, they said, yeah, tear it down, tear it down. Lay it bare down to its very foundations. The Edomites had this complete uh, disregard for the Israelites and their situation, and they gloried in it and said, amen, yes, let it be so, destroy them. And the Babylonians, verse 8, the author says, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. And verse 9 is, is, is a difficult one. So hear me read it, and I, and I want it to make you uncomfortable. Verse 9. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That's intentionally gruesome. He's saying a benediction, a blessing upon those who would repay Babylon for what they have done to Israel, but they do it by victimizing the children of Babylon. That's what the author is asking for in that line. So that's the situation of the psalm. Now, let's get into the struggle of the psalm. There's an internal struggle going on in this uh, psalm. The way the author expresses the struggle that they're going through is this. I, I would um, I'd explain it in two ways. They're experiencing a social brokenness and they're experiencing a spiritual brokenness. So, their social brokenness is this, is that they have been taken captive into a foreign land. As captives, they experience a loss of freedom. Secondly, they have been displaced from their homeland. Namely, they have lost their home. And thirdly, their enemies are risen up against them. They have lost their peace. So, got captivity, that's the loss of freedom. You've got displacement, that's the loss of home. You've got enemies, that's the loss of peace. So that's their social brokenness. Then is their spiritual brokenness. There's a disruption of worship, because you notice in the beginning, they said, we've hung up our harps, we won't sing, and in fact, even if we do try, we don't give Jerusalem our, its priority, let our hands not be able to function on those instruments, and let our tongues cleave to, to the roof of our mouth. So there's a distortion of worship. The praise is not flowing from their hearts. They won't sing. They say, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And secondly, you see their social brokenness and their spiritual brokenness in the fact that they are experiencing an inconsolable grief. They say, we sat down, we wept when we remembered Zion. Remember that they've been taken from their homeland Their homeland has been destroyed. And as a result, there's an inconsolable grief. So that's their spiritual brokenness. And then, I I want you to notice that their social brokenness and their spiritual brokenness go hand in hand. That they're they're one and the same. The fact that they have been taken out of their homeland, the fact that their homeland has has been destroyed, probably many people, many of their... uh, people have been killed, that's what leads to their spiritual brokenness. The fact that they're captive and displaced and their enemies have risen up against them is the reason that worship is not flowing from their, um, from their hearts. Their spiritual brokenness goes hand in hand with their social brokenness. So that's the struggle that the author voices within the psalm. 
then there's an external struggle that we as outsiders to the psalm realize as we read the psalm. And namely, the, 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 where you see this, the struggle that I had when I was looking at the psalm, when I've studied the psalm, because it's not the first time I've read it, um, I've probably read it multiple times, and what always hits you is that last passage, or, or is that last portion asking for, asking for judgment. Um, it's this appetite for revenge. And, you know, I would venture to say that it's something that's even grossly overstated. Let me read it again. It says, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. It's basically asking for the destruction of Babylonian babies. It seeks to visit harm on the most vulnerable members of the society that they're now in. It almost feels like it goes beyond a cry for justice, because justice would, um, would be visited upon the perpetrators of injustice. It wouldn't be visited upon the children of the Babylonians. It even seems to go beyond divine retribution, because in the Psalms, even David he says, like, Lord, judge my enemies. I ate them with the perfect hatred, but I want you to try my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me. He's cautious about the way that he asks for justice to come upon his enemies. But this is just raw. He says, like, blessed is the one who takes your babies, O Babylon, and destroys them. he's pronouncing a benediction upon those who would do this. You see, we pronounce a benediction at the end of our service that you may go forth with the blessing of the Lord as we close the services and, and, you, and you go forth. And what his benediction here is, is he's saying a benediction upon those who would um, participate in the killing of the infants of Babylon. And that should make us very uncomfortable. And am I the only one who, who's a little uncomfortable by that? Raise your hand. Like, wait, why is that in the Bible? All right. And it, it makes me uncomfortable further because it seems to contradict other parts of Scripture. What does Jesus say about our enemies? He said, love, what? Love your enemies, right? Do good to those who persecute you. In fact, it even seems to contradict Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah told them, hey, you're going to go away into captivity. This is Jeremiah 29. Let me read it for you. He writes to the, to the Israelites who are in captivity. Now, he's still back home in Jerusalem. And he writes to the captives. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons um, and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
And how many times have we heard Jeremiah 29, 11 used, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans for good and not for evil, and we've used that without the context of Jeremiah, which is Jeremiah telling the captives, hey, I know you're in Babylon. I know you're away from everything that's familiar to you. I know you're away from the worship uh, in the temple, but make your life there for a couple generations because you're going to be there 70 years. And in fact, don't um, cultivate harm against Babylon. Seek the welfare and the peace of that city because as God blesses it and gives it prosperity, your welfare and prosperity is contingent upon that. And so Psalm 137.9 seems to go against what Jeremiah explicitly tells them to do, which is seek the welfare of that city. And here they are saying, blessed is anyone who comes against Babylon, takes its infants, and kills them. Problem, right? Another problem is that um, God was the one who kicked them out of the land of Israel. It was because of their negligence of his commands Specifically, their negligence with their hearts to not worship him rightly, constantly going after idolatry, not keeping his Sabbaths, not being diligent to do his laws, that God takes them. He says, I'm sending you into another land. I'm sending you into exile because you're not obeying me here. And so I'm putting you through a time of testing and refining. So... What do you mean you can't sing God's song in a strange land? Guess what? They couldn't even sing God's song rightly in their land. Isaiah said of of these people, of, of these Israelites, that they draw near to God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. So, how do we interpret Because it's there in in the Bible. This is scripture. One author calls Psalm 137 the scandal of the book of Psalms. I looked up Jewish commentators. Because I said, well, the the Christians might be too timid to deal with it. How do the Jews deal with it? And I found one commentator. He doesn't even touch that verse. Doesn't want to say anything about that verse. Christian commentators. I looked at one of them who says that, well, when it talks about destroying the infants of Babylon, taking them and, like, dashing them against the rocks, it's not talking about literal people. It means bashing their sins against the rock of faith. And I thought that was really silly. That's, that's really contrived. It's, it's, um, it, it's just something someone made up because they don't want to deal with the harshness and the ferocity of this passage. The great Baptist preacher Spurgeon, he looked at this passage and he said, okay, there's two ways to deal with your enemies. There's law and there's grace. And these people obviously chose the path of law and judgment. Yes, but why? Why? And is this what God wants for us? So um, that, that's, that's the struggle of the psalm. Okay, now let's get into the solution of the psalm. First of all, we need to remember that the psalm is true. All scripture, uh, Paul reminds Timothy, is given by inspiration of God, or a better translation is, it is God-breathed. God breathes it out, and so it is exactly in Psalm 137 what God wanted there to be in that psalm. In fact, this psalm was part of the, of the, um, 
of the Psalter that Jesus and his apostles would have considered Holy Scripture. So, it's God-breathed. It's exactly what God wanted to be there. But, what I would say is this. And that just because something is authentically portrayed in Scripture doesn't mean that it's a command for us to follow. It doesn't mean that it's a directive for us to follow. Think about this. In the book of Judges, we have the story of Gideon. Gideon laying out the fleeces. God telling him, I want you to go up against the Midianites, I think it was. And Gideon says, well, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay out a fleece. Okay, here's the deal, God, Gideon says. Uh, Let the fleece be wet in the morning and uh, the ground be dry, and then I'll know it's your will. And God does it. And Gideon says, wait, I'm not sure yet. Let's try it again. Uh, this time, do the opposite. Let the ground be wet and the fleece be dry. And, and Gideon uses that to discern the will of God. And even though God answers him the way that he wanted God to answer, who says that that's a command for us to follow? Just because the Bible authentically recounts that story doesn't mean God wants us to do that same thing. God, do you want me to, to go to church this morning? Okay, I'm going to lay out the fleece. Okay, let, let it be wet. No, we're not supposed to do that. Likewise, think about Abraham bargaining with God. God says, I'm going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because their wickedness has, has risen up against me. And Abraham says, okay, what if we could find 50 guys that are righteous in their ways? Will you still destroy it? God says, no. Abraham says, okay, how about 40? Can we do it for 40? Oh, okay, okay, how about 30? Can we do it for 30? Okay, 20. Will you spare the city for 20? 10. Will we spare it for, for 10? Well, even though God listens to Abraham and the narrative is there for us in Genesis, does that mean that we're supposed to do the same, that we're supposed to employ the same tactic with, with God? Probably not. Think about Job chapters 4 through 37. You see, Job chapters 1 to 3 uh, tells us like what's going on in the book of Job, how God is allowing suffering to be brought into Job's life so that he might ultimately get glory from it. And um, we're told that in the first three chapters and the last three chapters of the book of Job. But during the middle of the book of Job, from, I think, chapters 4 through 37, it's basically this dialogue between Job and his three friends, them saying, Job, you've done something wicked. You've done something wrong. You need to repent of what you have done. And we find out at the end of the book of Job that they were completely wrong. And God says, like, like they, they're, they're sitting with their lips. And so just because the book of Job accurately and authentically recounts exactly all the crazy stuff that Job's three friends said, and it's part of the larger story that God wants us to know, it doesn't mean that his friends were right. And so... I want to make that argument here, that just because the psalm writer says that they felt this level of grief and despair and hatred does not mean that we are to emulate the same thing, right? It doesn't mean that this is, that this is something that we um, bring into our lives, You also need to remember that the psalm is contextual, right? Here's what context is. Context 
um, is the idea that Romans chapter 4 goes after Romans chapter 3 intentionally for a definite reason. That what Paul communicates uh, in Romans chapter 3, that the next logical step of the argument is found in Romans chapter 4. And the Psalms, you need to realize, are written in a definite context. It's not just random, random pieces, random writings, random poems. When Ezra was putting together the book of Psalms, it's not as though he chose numbers out of some sort of hat. said, okay, well, we'll place the 23rd over here, okay, and then, and then this can go after that. And Psalm 137, we'll place it here. That, that did not happen. There's, there's an intention in the way that the book is pieced together. And we need to understand that. So we're... Um, the book of Psalms, as you may know, is divided up into five volumes. And this psalm is found in the fifth volume. And where this kind of begins, I think it's Psalm 107. And so um, in the early portion of this book, namely Psalms 113 through 118, they're called the Hallel Psalms. These are psalms of praise that are used during Passover. That um, it, it culminates with the killing of the Passover in Psalm 118, which could be what Jesus and his disciples sung on the night that they celebrated the Passover on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the, it's the psalm that says, take, take the sacrifice and bind it to the altar. It says, this is the day that the Lord has made. It, it's, um, it's marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So that's Psalm 118. That's, that's the Hillel Psalms. They culminate there with the killing of the Passover. Um, and then Ezra throws in Psalm 119, which he likely wrote, which is 178 verses, 22 subchapters, all about the Word of God and the beauty and the impeccability of God's law. And then begins the Psalm of Ascents, number 120 to 134, which would be Psalms that they uh, recite as they ascend upwards towards Jerusalem on the pilgrimages that they would make there. So these are pilgrimage psalms. Um, And they're looking towards Zion. They're on an ascent. And when they get there, you have Psalm 135. They're in the house of the Lord. They're praising God and remembering his works. And then you have Psalm 136, which is what we read which, again, it recounts his works. And the, um, and the congregation responds for his mercy or his steadfast love. His covenant mercy endures forever. And you're, you're reading that. You're going 26 verses, right? His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. And you get to Psalm 137, and it hits you like a slap in the face because it begins, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. That's intention. Everything else up to this point, they're ascending. They're looking towards Zion. I think... Well, 121 is, where does my strength come from? Where does my help come from? Psalm 135, this is how great it is to be in the house of the Lord and praising Him and remembering Him. And 136, His mercy endures forever. And 137, we're going to hang up our hearts and we're not going to sing because we cannot sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. Guess what? Those 20 previous chapters, how many ever there, there were, um, 
just with one psalm, it's all wiped away. They say we can't sing the Lord's song in a strange land. And let me argue this further, this argument for context, by telling you what the next psalm demonstrates. Psalm 138. Let's take a look at that and look at David's reaction. Look at David's response. Let's see how he handles this. David says in Psalm 138, verse 1, I will give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. David says, I will sing your praise before the foreign gods. But the Israelites in the previous psalm, which actually was written after um, the psalm of David, they're chronologically reversed. David says, I will sing praise before the foreign gods. And and they say, well, because we're in a foreign land, we're not going to sing God's praise in that land. David says in verse 2, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love, right? Covenant mercy and your faithfulness um, for you have exalted your name, um, exalted above all things your name and your word. Here's what David says his highest in his life. He says, the most exalted things that I recognize are the name of God and the word of God, who he is and what he has said. But what do these um, people in captivity say? They say, our highest joy is Jerusalem, is our homeland. And David says, and David knew exile, right? Because he, he fled from Saul and he also fled from his own son. And, and, and David says that my highest joy, the things that I regard as highest, are God's name and his word. Those are my highest joy. He expresses a confidence in God. He says in verse 3, On the day I called, you answered me. My, uh, my strength of soul, you increased. Verse 4, look at this. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. How can all the kings of the earth give praise to God and hear the words of his mouth if we will not sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. And David says, I'll do it. I'll praise and all the kings will recognize the greatness of God's name. And they themselves will sing, verse 5. He says, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. The Israelites say, like, we're not going to sing, but David says that my praise is going to be so strong, so convincing, so free, and so bold that the kings themselves will praise the Lord. The foreign kings, right? He's not talking about kings in Israel. He's the only one. He's talking about the foreign kings. They will hear and they will emulate. Verse 6, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Notice in uh, in the last two verses of that, the three mentions of God's hand. David says, um, you stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. Your right hand delivers me. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And the Hebrews would use repetition 
um, of words like that to make a point. And it should point us back to Psalm 137, which where the author says that, well, you know, if I don't remember Jerusalem, I don't want my hands to remember their skill on the stringed instruments. And David seems to communicate to us that it's not about your hand and its skillfulness and how well you can do things and how well you can worship, but it's about God's hand um, that protects us and keeps us. And um, it's about God's right hand upholding us. It's not about us. It's about him. And what if we all took the attitude of Psalm 137? What if we all said that when our circumstances became difficult, when we were in circumstances that were unfamiliar and uncomfortable, what if we said that? What if we said, well, I can't sing the Lord's song in a strange land, that if somehow God brings us to another situation, another context, another relationship, another church, we say, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not at Woodside, like it, the, the, the things that are familiar to me are not there. Like, I don't have the choir, or I don't have Joanna on the piano, or Menzi strumming the guitar, and, and I, I just can't worship, because it's not what I'm used to. It's not what's familiar to me. I cannot sing the Lord's song in a different land, in a different circumstance, in a situation that is uncomfortable and unfamiliar for me. I think of a situation like the Giddings when they basically lost the functionality of their home in the Rockaways at Breezy Point. And what if they said, well, we're displaced from our, our home. We can't, we can't serve the Lord. What, what if everyone took that attitude? Like, would we be a stronger church? No, but and I'm thankful that they did not, that God multiplied the way that he was using them and ministering to them because they said... We'll sing the Lord's song in Maspeth, in Forest Hills, in Woodside. I'm thankful for our transplants that are here from North Shore and from Woodhaven, right? And we, we love them and we're, we're glad to have them. And, and, and they, at any point, they could have easily said, wow, this, this church is strange. They don't do things the way that we're used to. They're, they don't do music the way that we we're used to. They're a little more formal than we are. What, what's up with the neon bulletin? That, that's, that's unfamiliar. That's uncomfortable. We cannot worship God in a strange land. But they did not. They gave themselves to what God seems to be doing here. And we're the stronger for it. We're the better for it. You know, this psalm yearns for something outside of itself. It's looking for an answer that is not found within the psalms. The psalms, this psalm yearns for something outside, something external. So the problems that we saw in Psalm 137 are the social brokenness, the spiritual brokenness, and the appetite for revenge, if we could deal with those three things. And we, we face that in, in our lives as well. We, we might not be captive. We, not, we might not be displaced. We might not have enemies. But to some degree, we face these kind of things in our lives. And we have the comfort and the familiarity stripped away from us. So we all endure, to some degree, social brokenness and spiritual brokenness. And if you're honest, we all have an appetite for vengeance at different times. Their social brokenness was seen in their captivity, in their displacement, and the fact that enemies were risen up against them. 
Their spiritual brokenness was seen in the fact that their worship was distorted and could not flow from their hearts, and they had an inconsolable grief, and their appetite for vengeance was to um, call for the destruction of the Babylonian infants, whereas we know that God wants something better for us. And so what's the solution? What do you think is always the answer at the end of a sermon that I preach or pastor preaches? What's the solution? What does God give us that answers those things? Who knows? What does God send? Who does God send? I think I heard it. Jesus? Is someone saying that? It's always going to be the right answer. But, but the answer is Jesus and the cross of Christ. That's what God gives us that is going to be that is going to answer the problems that we encounter in these songs. So take social brokenness for example. That the Son of God comes and he yields himself to captivity. He becomes a bondservant so that we might become free. Jesus, he faces social brokenness in this that he is rejected by his household. By his people, he is abandoned by his disciples to die alone and is crucified outside of the city so that you and I might have a home with him. It's not about Zion. It is about Calvary. Jesus encounters his enemies. They compass him round about. He is scorned and mocked by his fellow men who become enemies against him. Most significantly, his most significant enemy upon the cross is the Father. The Father becomes the enemy of the Son and despises and rejects the Son. And it happens so that we can gain peace with the Father. So that's social brokenness. Then we have spiritual brokenness. He is abandoned is abandoned by the Father. As the weight of sin upon the shoulders of the Son of God makes him more vile and despicable than any rapist or murderer or child molester, the Father turns his face away. As the Son claims our most deepest, darkest secrets as though they were his own, so that we might be forgiven and obtain his righteousness. Who who faced greater inconsolable grief than the Son of God. It was the Son of God who in horror cried out the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He bore our grief so that God might become our comfort. That is the gospel. As has been said by Pastor many times, Jesus in my place. Those four words. And then finally we have vengeance. There there is a yearning in Psalm 137 for justice. For it is a sense, it is an appetite that goes beyond justice. There is demonstrated in Psalm 137 an escalating cycle of violence, a cry so loud that it demands the destruction of the most vulnerable members of that society, the Babylonian infants. Weren't the Jews supposed to be a light to all the nations? Wasn't their temple supposed to be a light to all the nations? So here they are in Babylon seeking the destruction of the most vulnerable members of that society. And we know God calls us to something better, namely loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us. And so how do we get that? How are we transformed from an appetite for vengeance to a passion for grace? 
the gospel. Here's how. The Son of God comes and he steps into humanity. He lets himself become the victim of limitless injustice and infinite violence. The one who is infinitely pure and innocent, whose perfections are infinitely more valuable than any Babylonian infant, he is taken and by wicked hands and for the sake of wicked men, he is broken and smashed and crushed against the rock of God's wrath for sin. But it is in becoming the victim of violence that he becomes the victor over violence as he rises again. And we know that ultimate justice was visited upon the Son of God in full measure upon that cross so that we no longer need to bear the burden or to seek to settle the score between those who would be our enemies. And so we see Christ is the answer to our social brokenness, to our spiritual brokenness, and to the appetite for vengeance. And he does so by yielding his life for ours. He dies so that we might live. That is the gospel. Jesus in our place. Let's pray.